This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Keller. I'm the university librarian, and I welcome you all to this last session, the last formal session of this um, program on international trade. This session is devoted to the scholarly use of international organization information. And I have to say that it's been a wonderful ride to be involved in this, uh, this conference, of which uh, we are a co-sponsor along with Judith Goldstein and uh, Roger Knoll. And I'm grateful to all of you who have come from so far away to be presenters and participants in this uh, entire conference. And I especially thank you all for coming to be part of this session. As I think about this matter of documentation and scholarly information and the formal and informal record of organizations, institutions, and individuals, I think about the fact that these records, these archival collections, these documents, in effect are the, the history, the remnants of the work of the organizations and the individuals. In the cases that I know best since Second World War, especially the Global Agreement on Tariff and Trade, that record was gathered in a non-systematic way, was gathered, not systematically, not with a records management program, and it seems almost without conscious effort at the strategic level of the GATT. And it was because of Judy Goldstein's engagement with the U.S. delegation to the GATT and then to the WTO that we found out about the GATT archive and got the first request from her to gather what documents we could. At first, it was a big microfilm collection, and then she discovered that she had appetite for more, came back to us and said, I need more. Let's do some more microfilm. And we said, no, let's capture this stuff digitally. Let's see if we can't make a great big digital archive. And the, uh, the party went on from there for several years. The point, though, is that whether the archive is digital or paper, it forms in a compact way the record underneath the official policy record, the official documentation of what went on and how it went on. And the interpretation of that record by those who are directly involved and especially by those who come after and will come after for some generations is quite important. And I think that it is um, the task really of this panel to look and to talk about the documentation of these sorts of organizations and the use of that documentation, the use of these archives for the illumination of what actually happened so that maybe we can understand it better and maybe the policymakers who are involved in the current instantiations of these sorts of organizations will do better in the future. I thank you all for coming. I want to introduce Tony Angeletta, the Morrison Curator for the Social Sciences, an old and dear friend, and an active participant in the GATT digitization effort to actually introduce the protagonists in this very small drama we're about to see. Tony? Unlike everyone else except one, I don't have a PowerPoint, and some people know what my attitude is toward the medium. So I'm going to make a few gratuitous remarks. Um, and I hope they set uh, a stage, so to speak, for uh, the five panelists. Um, 
Mike has spoken about the uh, initiative and ongoing project of the GATT Digital Library. Uh, I've been fortunate uh, since I've been here to be involved with efforts to render our own collections, uh, as well as to seek collaboration uh, with other institutions to, in fact, render these resources uh, digitally and to put them online, obviously. Some of these initiatives and associated projects have had some adventuresome episodes attached to them that one doesn't usually uh, associate with the work of archivists or librarians. Uh, they range, for example, in my own experience uh, from a visit in the early 1990s to the former East Berlin to visit with an anarchist collective uh, who held a significant collection of materials uh, that uh, documented uh, an important dimension of the overthrow of the Ancien Regime uh, in East Germany. Uh, I met with them at least three times, and uh, some of them uh, were very pleased to talk with me individually. It was a wonderful primary resource. Uh, however, putting philosophy into practice uh, and remembering a New York Times article three days ago, uh, there was no decider there. Uh, and uh, therefore, over three occasions, no one could make a decision, and not enough of them were ever around to render a consensus. So no agreement could be reached. In addition, on the point of adventure. Uh, more recently, I found myself driving 1,500 kilometers in West Europe, uh, carrying in the trunk of my rental car uh, unique uh, bound annual reports of an international organization. Uh, and I was taking them in order to keep them secure and to bring them to an installation where we could technically assess uh, the possibilities of digitizing them. Um, it had a sort of a mystery about it uh, and made the more dramatic by my having blown out the rear window of my rental car first one uh, in an impossibly uh, narrow confine of a hotel in a certain city. Uh, there's a few other stories falling faint and waking up 25 minutes later uh, in my rental car at the EU statistical offices in Luxembourg because I had an inner ear infection. Mike doesn't know about that one, I don't think. And then there was uh, the one, uh, is Judy here? Uh, where Judy and I, uh, Judy Goldstein and I, uh, drove around for more than an hour with a seriously ill uh, co-worker on our scanning project looking for the emergency room of the Cantonal Hospital. Uh, we discovered later it was 200 meters away from us, but the streets were narrow, uh, particularly at around 2 a.m. In any case, the last example is perhaps, if you have to imagine it, I was at a well-known diplomatic mission uh, in Switzerland, 
And uh, I found myself spending the first hour and a half not negotiating with people about uh, some unique documentation, uh, but found myself helping them, one, find the key to the shipping container that was out in the parking lot, which contained all of these unique resources, and then spending another half an hour fitting the key. So those are some of the little adventures that one has uh, when you're doing this kind of work. Uh, I've been working, lastly, on personal paper. A personal paper is the mention of the GATT Digital Library. And this one is not intended to have any humor to it, but also to point up uh, what one experiences. And that is, uh, with regard to personal papers, for more than four years I have been seeking the personal papers of a variety of people associated with the GATT. And in particular, there was one American Deputy Director General uh, who had been extremely influential during the 1960s and 1970s uh, and who had also been very influential in the founding of uh, the Woodrow Wilson Center. Uh, I finally succeeded in tracking uh, the heirs down because I knew that he had uh, passed away. And uh, only two weeks before, they had discarded 20 cubic feet of his personal papers. Uh, so those are the, some, some of the things that you encounter uh, uh, in th this kind of business. Now, each one of these little anecdotes has to do with a judgment that there's something of great value for understanding how the worlds of politics, trade, development, and finance intersect historically and in the present through access in any format by scholars and others to the archives of IGOs such as the Three Sisters, that is, the bank, the fund, and the WTO. Those of us in research libraries would prefer the broadest and deepest public accessibility within the bounds, on the one hand, of reasonableness and practicality by the stewards of such information, and within the bounds of affordability and competition for scarce institutional resources on the other. It goes without saying that what we're trying to do or what we would prefer to do or desire to do is to preserve the historical record in a way that is durable, best practices, and standard-based, and which provides much greater searchability and retrievability. Now, broadened and enhanced access via born digital means or by digitization of existing print media appear to be self-evident pathways to greater opportunities for scholarly research and production. But it also raises the possibility of the democratization of access for what, to take a phrase from President Hennessy here at Stanford, to raise the possibility of an more enlightened and useful global citizenry. Whether and how such an ideal might be attained and with what consequences along the way is something I'm certainly wary of addressing. Though it does, in fact, raise the question that Robert Lind raised in 1939 and now has the status of an aphorism. And that is, knowledge for what? A famous question in social science as well as the aphorism now raised to the status of the cliché by T.S. Eliot's, where is the wisdom 
we have lost in knowledge. Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And in particular, because we're confronted with a blizzard. I hate that kind of language. A tsunami, if you will, of information which grows larger every day. That's only approaching the issue from the perspective of efficiency and effectiveness. We also know that there remain widespread national and intergovernmental restrictions that seem to have little to do with the principle of utility and which reflect as much traditional raison d'etat attitudes reinforced by bureaucratic inertia as they do rational state or interstate deliberations and behavior. A fair example is in the news. We all must have seen it uh, in the Times yesterday where more than 9,000 historical documents at the National Archives, were, which had been withdrawn from public access and reclassified as confidential or higher, they found that, of course, there was no sensitive information in these 9,000 documents at all, and an additional 7,000 had been withdrawn because they contained extremely old secrets or had already been published. Alan Weinstein, Alan Weinstein, the National Archivist, made a quip in the wake of this audit on security and classification, and it resonates with every librarian and archivist. And that is, he said, we're in the access business, not in the classification business. So in the spirit of this conference on trade liberalization, where a number of economists and political scientists have gathered, to reflect on their thinking and research and various dimensions of the topic, we on this panel would like to approach the value of the information produced, gathered, stored, and made accessible by IGOs for scholarly and broad public consumption. One way to do that in the present tense is to invite this panel, three archivists from the bank, the fund, and the UN office in Geneva, as well as two scholars who have worked in and around archives and online information system, systems to speak to the theme of the scholarly use of international organization information. The first speaker who, like me, is not using media is uh, Michel Dolbeck. Michelle Dolbeck is from the Fund, the International Monetary Fund. She is a Canadian. She's graduated from the Université, uh, University of Montreal with an MA in the History of Architecture and an MA and Certificate in Archives Management from the School of Library and Information Science there. She had an internship at the Archives, the National Archives of France and International Studies at the École Nationale d'Administration Publique in Montreal. She's a member of numerous national and international professional associations. She's chaired the executive board of the Réseau des Archives du Québec. She's chaired committees for professional associations with regard to implementing or developing national policies on archives and assessing national funding programs. She's been with the fund since 1996, first as a section chief, archives and records, and since 1999 as the archivist at the IMF. In that capacity, she serves as an expert on matters related to the institutional memory of the fund, always important. She formally helps formulate the policy framework and leads the strategic planning for the archiving program. She also 
oversees the development of the archives collection and serves as a spokesman for the archives. I think without further ado, I'll turn this over to Michelle. Hello, hi, good afternoon. Uh, first, I would like to thank Chuck and Tony for the invitation. It was extremely kind of you, and it's a real pleasure to be here this afternoon. Uh, mainly, I would like to talk to you about the uh, policy on access to the IMF archives as one of the initiatives on transparency and also on the archives um, program, more specifically. Uh, in the 1990s, the fund started several initiatives to, uh, towards transparency. <coughs> And that led in 1996 to um, the approval of, by the board to a request to open the archives of the fund. Um, that rule, the first rule at the time, was a 30-year rule, with exception for highly confidential and sensitive information, such as records protected by attorney-client privilege, documentary materials provided to the fund by external parties that bear confidentiality markings, personnel and medical files, and documents of the grievance committee. In 1999, um, we further liberalized access to um, the archives of the fund. Uh, with a 20-year rule for the departmental records instead of 30, and with a five-year rule for selected board documents. We went back again in 2003 to the board, uh, and this time we added several um, board series to the new rule. So we kept the 20-year rule, we kept the five-year rule for selected board series, but then we added a 10-year rule for board um, series such as buffs and great documents from executive directors, uh, precedes of executive board meetings that were under a 20-year uh, rule. Uh, essentially, that um, shows you how, though, the parameters for providing access to the archives of an international uh, organization relies on the executive board. Um, the archivists can recommend, but we do not have the power to implement any rule without approval of the board. Um, 1999, to go now directly to the archives program, is a turning point for us uh, at that at that time, the archives had been um, operating since 1947. They had accumulated a large volume um, of materials. And a modern approach to the program was strongly needed. The program was suffering, as I said, from a backlog, non-integrated processes and systems. Uh, there was also a lack in terms of policies, procedures, and a strategy to make these records that were supposedly open to the public, really open to the public. Um, so we conducted an assessment of the program, and that led to a report including a set of recommendations. The assessment was then used uh, by external consultants 
to establish a multi-year cost-effective restructuring plan for the archives, um, providing a framework and a time frame for the restructuration, and also an estimate of the resources needed to do it. And by 19, uh, 2003, uh, the board endorsed our recommendations and approved a budget of $4.4 million for the Archives Transparency Project. When we started the project in 2003, uh, about 95% of the archives collection was closed to the public. And uh, the objectives of the project were mainly to provide staff with rapid and secure access to fund archives, enabling them to search and retrieve information from headquarters or remotely when they're on mission than to systematically preserve all records that embody the fund's institutional memory, regardless of their format. And finally, to fulfill the institution's commitment to transparency by making the fund's archives, together with electronic research tools, available to the public via the web. Where are we after three years of that great project? Well. We have so far accessioned 12,000 cubic feet of departmental records and 400,000 photographs and also a collection of nearly 2,000 items of uh, proceedings of board uh, meetings, annual meetings since 1947. We have also digitized 150,000 documents of board series back from 1946 to today, and they're available on the what we call the uh, institutional repository, and it's available to internal staff, well, to staff. And then it's also accessible through um, our reading room to external researchers. And I will explain later on why they're not yet available online. We have um, processed so far, um, we have processed so far uh, the, all the records from 1946 to 1988 for the area departments, the, uh, archi the audio collection, and records from former managing directors' offices, uh, namely uh, Mr. Root, Mr. Jacobson, uh, Schweitzer, Viteveen. We are actually working on the records of Mr. De La Rousière and Condessu. For all these records, they have been also reviewed by one of our archivists who is in charge only of declassifying classified information in those records. Our estimates at the time were that about 25% of the records maintaining those files were classified. So she has reviewed all of those that have been processed and is in the way to declassify them. And um, essentially what it is opening now uh, to researchers because we're not going to wait till 2009 to open everything. As soon as the, the records are processed, they're made 
available to researchers. It's opening historical data such as technical assistance files, mission files, surveillance files, and operational files, which includes discussions between the fund and member countries. Over the next three years, we plan on processing and declassifying what we call Tranche 2, which uh, is mainly the functional department, such as uh, the Monetary and Fiscal Systems Department, the Policy Development and Review Department, uh, Fiscal Affairs Legal Department, and um, the Secretary's uh, Department. And then later on in Tranche 3, mainly uh, Statistics and the Treasurer's Department. So at the end of this project, we should have the 12,000 linear uh, cubic feet of material all processed with the finding aids up on the web and declassified. So we hope we'll survive. And then uh, this year already we have several finding aids that are ready to be um, um, published on the web. And as of June 1st, for those who will come to the archives of the IMF, you will have the possibility to bring uh, and use your own digital camera to take uh, pictures of the record for your own research. Uh, finally, in those three years also, we would like to implement a plan for creating and maintaining what we call the e-archives, which is uh, managing the uh, institutional electronic records, which we have not really uh, tackled yet, and um, it's getting quite late. And then the new archive, and then uh, buy and a new archives management system with a uh, dynamic web-based access. In that project, we have had really uh, three main constraints. The first was uh, the sensitive nature of uh, fund information, um, which led, as I said, to a large portion of records being classified. It's about 25% of the records. And so, um, but it's, I mean, I must say that we have good uh, cooperation from the uh, authorities in that regard. So that's, that's helping us. But it's still slowing down the process of, of cataloging the information. The other issues are um, the copyright and then the fund publication policy. The copyright is that the archives own the copyright for records created by the fund but we do not own the copyright for materials provided to the fund. And for those, it's a researcher's responsibility to obtain a copy, uh, a copyright. Um, we can't do it for them. We can liaise with the external parties, but we can't do it for them. And finally, um, there is um, a differentiation in the fund between access and publication. And in that regard, uh, the archives are subject to fund, the fund's publication policy. That contains various conditions and prerequisites as to when material may be published by the fund, particularly with respect to obtaining the consent of a member country that is the subject of the material. 
what that means for us because it has a great impact on our objective of creating a web access to, this, to these archives is that we will have to seek permission for each document provided to the fund by an external party. We'll have to seek permission to publish it on the web. So what we are going to try to do in the next few years is to go back to the board and ask them for a uh, larger permission, much larger permission than that to publish our uh, records on the web. Because we, we know that this is somehow what the researchers are looking for. Uh, we cannot, as an international organization, provide access to our records only from Washington. They have to be accessible to people remotely. So we just hope that we'll be able to get that done for you. Thank you very much. I neglected to say earlier that uh, we're going to ask that we hold uh, questions and answers and observations until we finish with the panelists' presentations. Uh, our second speaker is uh, Blandine blacach Louisfer, uh, who is the chief of the Registry, Records and Archives Unit at the Library of the United Nations Office at Geneva. Uh, as the head archivist of the registry. Um, her responsibilities encompass not only the historical archives of the League of Nations and of UNOG, uh, but also extend to the coordination of records management of the Economic Commission for Europe, UNCTAD, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Prior to her appointment at UNOG in 1999, uh, Ms. Blukach-Louis-Fer participated with UNESCO in the creation of a national archive in the Republic of Yemen. From 1992 to 1997, uh, that's what, what she was in the Republic of Yemen, and also has worked as the curator at the National Archives, as a curator at the National Archives in Paris from 1990 to 1991. Her published works include articles on the Ducumel, collections of the UNOG library, as well as a case study on her work in Yemen. The title of her talk is Archival Resources Available at the Library of UNOG in the Economics Field. First of all, on behalf of the Chief Librarian of the United Nations Office at Geneva, I would like to thank our host for the invitation to participate in the conference and make this presentation on archival resources available at the Library of the United Nations Office at Geneva in the economic field. After a short introduction on the Library of the United Nations Office at Geneva, I will give you a short overview of the history of economic and financial institutions under the auspices of the League of Nations and the UN in Geneva. And then I will present the related archival resources available for academic research and our ongoing efforts to broaden access for researchers. The library of the UN office at Geneva has three mandates. First one is to be the main UN library in Europe. Second one is to uh, be responsible for the coordination of archives management at UNOG. And third one is the coordination of cultural activities 
at the UN Office at Geneva, which is mainly uh, dealing with uh, present, presenting exhibition, including archival exhibition. The League of Nations Library was created in 1919, along with the League of Nations Secretariat in London, and then moved to Geneva in 1920. In 1927, when there was a need to build a new building for the Secretariat, uh, there was a gift by John D. Rockefeller Jr. to build a library with the intention to serve as a center of international research and an instrument of international understanding. The new library opened in the new building in 1936. However, as you know, as the uh, League of Nations failed at the political level and the Second World, World War broke out. Uh, the League ceased its activities in 1946. At that time, the loan library collections as well as the loan archives were transferred to the United Nations. The League of Nations Covenant uh, signed in June 1919 uh, by 42 nations, clearly assigned a political mission to this uh, first intergovernmental uh, organization, that is to ensure collective security and disarmament. However, the Article 23 uh, of the Covenant also made provision for cooperation between nations at a more technical level. And as you can see on the screen, Article 23, Part E, made a provision uh, for the members of the League will make provision to secure and maintain freedom of communications and transit and equitable treatment for the commerce of all members of the League. As a consequence, and as you may see on the screen, I'm afraid the quality is not very good, uh, this is a chart of the League of Nations where you can see the five main organs, the Assembly, the Council, the Permanent Secretariat, the Permanent Court of International, International Justice, and the International Labour Organization. These were the organs. And then you had technical organizations, among which the Economic and Financial Organization. The Economic and Financial Organization was created in 1920 and was consisting in a financial committee an economic committee, a fiscal committee, and a committee of statistical experts. The economic committee uh, prepared draft conventions or assisted in the preparation of international agreements or conferences, such as uh, I will. You you have on the screen a list of these uh, conventions. I will not. Uh, list them all here, but uh, for instance to be mentioned, the International Convention relating to simplification of customs formalities in 1923, the Convention for the Abolition of Import and Export Prohibitions and Restrictions in 1927-28, or the Procedure for the Friendly Settlement of Economic Disputes between States in 1932. Part of this pioneer work was also to organize economic, international economic conferences. And the first one took place in Geneva in 1927 uh, with 194 members and uh, 15 experts from 47 countries. The purpose of the conference was to stimulate production 
and restore freedom of trade. And uh, a lot of resolutions were adopted concerning commerce, industry, and agriculture. And for the ones concerning commerce, there was a freedom of trade and more stable and lower customs tariffs. The second economic conference took place in London in 1933. At that time, 64 countries were represented, including non-League of Nations members, such as the USA. And on the uh, photo on, on, on the right uh, top, you can see the US delegation with Cordell Hull as the chair. The purpose of the conference was to stabilize international monetary standards and to have prices rise at a steady and reasonable level. However, the conference was a failure. Due to this failure, and also the dramatic um, uh, situation at an economic level in the 30s, uh, the League of Nations uh, recognized the need for a reform of the uh, uh, Economic and Finance uh, Organization. A special committee uh, uh, chaired by uh, Stanley Bruce, the pr Australian Prime Minister, uh, produced a report uh, which was called the Report of the Special Committee on the Development of International Cooperation in Economic and Social Affairs. And in this report, uh, proposals were made for a new international machinery for the development and expansion of the League's social, economic and humanitarian activities. This would have been a central committee for economic and social questions. You see the date of the report, 1939. Due to the breakout of Second World War, they didn't have, the League of Nations didn't have time to implement this uh, reform. However, uh, the proposed reforms were adapted by those drafting the United Nations Charter, and reflected, it, it was reflected in the provision for an economic and social council. In 1940, uh, due to the war in, in Europe, the sections of the League of Nations Secretariat, which were dealing with economic, financial, and communication and transit problems, were transferred to the US at Princeton. It was dealing mainly with economic intelligence service, trade statistics, and it was also analyzing post-war economic problems and preparing future international economic organization, which the Princeton office prepared the ground for the Brenton Woods uh, organization. Then what happened in Geneva uh, in 1946, the, uh, after the creation of the United Nations in 1945, the United Nations office at Geneva was created in 1946, and it was located in the Palais des Nations, which was a former League of Nations seat. Its main functions were uh, to serve as a center for United Nations meetings in Europe, and uh, especially the Economic and Social Council uh, meetings every second year, but also to serve as a seat for the econo UN Economic Commission for Europe, created in 1947, and to serve as a seat for the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, created in 1964. All these institutions, from the League of Nations and the UN in Geneva, have produced records, which became historical archives, which are now under the custody of UNOG Library. 
we distinguish two main groups, the League of Nations Archives and the UNOG Archives. Just to give you some figures, uh, League of Nations Archives represent three linear kilometers, I'm sorry, the way we <laughs> count it in Europe, uh, among which resources related to trade represent approximately 200 linear meters. And the UNOG Archives are also three linear kilometers, among which resources related to trade represent approximately 350 linear meters. These are the ones which are under the custody of the library. Just to give you some examples of the different series, uh, for the League of Nations archives, you can find uh, League of Nations official printed documents, uh, especially the ones of the Economic Committee and subsidiary bodies, and the estimated quantity is 860 bound volumes. The League of Nations Secretariat internal documentation, files, correspondence, reports, and so on. Estimated quantity, 9,800 files, and these are to be found in the economic and financial section, in the financial section and economic intelligence service, so-called Princeton office, and the communication and transit section. Then you have the League of Nations conventions, ratifications, and other legal instruments where we have the original conventions and ratification instruments. For the time of the UN, we have a UNOG registry collection for the first, well, it's an internal uh, way to call it, for the first period from 1946 to 1983. And the constant series are the G1 general, G9 transport, and, G, and mainly G10 economics. Another collection is the UNOG records retirement. Uh, and mainly you have the files which have been transferred from the Economic Commission for Europe and some of the files of the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. The bulk of the UNCTAD archives are still with UNCTAD. What is the access policy? Uh, secretary staff, delegations to the United Nations, members of permanent missions, as well as external researchers, professors, historians, lawyers, and university students, etc., can consult the archives. We have two different rules, uh, access rules, access policy. One was issued in 1969 for the League of Nations archives, and the general rule is a 40 years rule for disclosure. And there was a 60 years special rule for files containing, containing internal documents of national administrations unofficially communicated at the time of the League of Nations, files containing documents which might affect the privacy of individuals, and personal files of officials. You can count, by the end of this year, all League of Nations files will be Often. Anyway, today, as a, because of the 40 years general rule, 99% of the files are accessible by the public. The UN has a different rule. It was established by Secretary of Administrative Instruction in 1984 in New York. 
And uh, the provision is that archives and records uh, that public may have access to archives and records that were accessible at the time of their creation, sorry. Those which are more than 20 years old and not subject to restrictions, which is a general rule, and those which are less than 20 years old and not subject to restrictions on condition that the originating office has given written consent for access. The archives, our archival holdings are accessible on site for researchers. We have two reading rooms, one for the League of Nations and one for the UN archives. A little bit of statistics to give you an idea. Um, for the League of Nations archives, between 2001 and 2005, we had 862 researchers on site, representing more than 4,000 working days. The UNOC archives reading room has more modest statistics. Uh, the explanation that it did not exist before 2001, I, I opened it in 2001, and this is the time we started to make uh, the holdings more visible. That explains a small amount of researchers, but it increases more and more. And it, it's also true for the League of Nations archives. Between 2004 and 2005, we have had an increase by 50%. Uh, also, as we have put our online catalog since September 2005, uh, we have statistics only since January, but the average uh, amount of visits is 800 a month. Uh, to be mentioned also that we uh, answer email requests, and it represents about uh, 400 requests a year. These are some examples of the research products uh, made by the researchers. To be mentioned here is the uh, dissertation, PhD dissertation by a, uh, an Italian uh, student, directly related to trade, challenging the economic Cold War, the UN Economic Commission for Europe and East-West Trade, 1947-1957. This is the access on site, but um, until 2005, the only way to have access to the finding aids, to know what we had, uh, was to come to the reading rooms. And we decided to uh, computerize the catalogs so that information would be available uh, online. We started the project in 2004 for archival description, and we are applying the general international standard for archival description. And we are using uh, an archives management software which is called Scope Archive. As already mentioned, we have put uh, the catalog online uh, in September 2005. For those who are interested, I have put some bookmarks there next to the entrance where you can find the address, uh, the URL. It's accessible through the uh, Library and Archives uh, UNOG uh, website. And uh, research can be made uh, uh, by three different uh, ways. Through the archive plan, that's what you can see here, or by keyword, simple search or advanced search. 
What is now available online is the structure. Uh, it, out of these six linear kilometers, it was impossible to <laughs> describe all the holdings at the, not to talk about the item level, but even at the folder level uh, so uh, quickly. Then we decided to have the structure down to the sub-series level online, at least to give an idea of what the holdings were and the quantities. Then when you click here, the, the, I pointed the form, what we call the form, this is the first level, where you can find uh, records, archives related to the economic field. And they are to be found in the League of Nations Secretariat form, in the League of Nations external form, this is the Princeton office. The UNOG registry first period and also the collections, these are the printed documents and uh, the conventions. When then you can go down the structure when by clicking on the plus on, on, on the left. And I pointed out the economics one. I don't know if this is visible here. No or more you can go down and then if you click on one title, you have the whole description of the form of the series or of the file or of the document if uh, available. It gives you the reference code, the title, the creation date, uh, the creator, scope and content, that's where, what, where we can explain what it is all about, the type of archival material, the level, some remarks if uh, accurate, and the extent. This one is in files, for instance. And what you can see at the bottom is links. This is just an example to show you uh, what the system allows us to do. You can link images of the files themselves to the unit of description. And I don't know if this is visible on the screen, but this is one example. The uh, registry file related to international trade organization in at the beginning, this is the organization of the conference, the first conference. And then you have, you can have the documents, and so on and so forth. Uh, just last week when I left the office, we had 16 and 200 units of description available in the system. As I said, we have put the structure online, but now we go deeper according to different, it's usually upon, uh, to, to respond to a request from researchers. But we have uh, had a project for describing the human rights records from 1948 to um, 1974, and we are now describing the photo collections related to human rights. The Sean Lester papers, uh, which are, uh, Sean Lester was the last Secretary General, Secretary General of the League of Nations, the refugee collection of the League of Nations, and the registry second period of the UNOG. In November 2005, we have also put the Bertha von Suttner papers down to document level uh, catalog online. Uh, Bertha von Suttner was a pacifist from before the First World War, and we have her papers. Projects and perspectives. We you know, description and digitization are a very long process. And then we implement co cooperative projects. Uh, we have 
achieved microfining of some of the fonds. It was a cooperative project with the Norwegian Foundation. Automated and ISG compliant description of League of Nations and UNOG archival resources and digitization. As I said, as I mentioned, we had uh, cooperation with the Fritz Foundation from Norway, with the UN Archives in New York, who financed the description of the human rights uh, records, and with Indiana University, who uh, digitized all the League of Nations photo collection. As a conclusion, I would like to say that our objective is to make League of Nations and UNOG archival resources more and more available to the academic community and the general public while respecting both professional standards and United Nations rules and principles. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Blondine. Our third speaker is Ron Mitchell, Ronald Mitchell. Um, he's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Oregon. His book, uh, Intentional Oil Pollution at Sea, Environmental Policy and Treaty Compliance, uh, won the 1995 Sprout Award from the International Studies Association for the best book on international environmental issues. He's co-editor of a 2006 forthcoming volume from MIT Press entitled Global Environmental Assessments, Information and Influence. It examines the conditions under which environmental science influences international policymaking. He has published uh, numerous articles and chapters in editor edited volumes. He's currently conducting research on two major projects. The first involves the development of a database of all multilateral environmental treaties and corresponding performance indicators, as well as the application of quantitative methods to examine the effects these treaties have on the behavior of states and non-state non actors. The second project he's engaged in is seeks to help new scientists working on climate change develop interdisciplinary skills to improve their understanding of and the ability to help solve the problem of climate change. He teaches courses on international relations, international environmental politics, and international organization. And he visited with us five years ago uh, as a research fellow at IIS, uh, now the uh, Freeman Spogli Institute. The title of his uh, talk is Making International Organization Information Useful to Scholars collecting, transforming, and creating data for evaluating environmental treaties. Uh, thanks, Tony and um, Chuck and Judy for inviting me to be here. Um, I'll, um, I mean, the first thing you may, question you may be asking is why am I here? Um, it's rather rather different. I, I'm, I'm working on issues that I do think relate to the, the topic of the conference in the sense of one of the big questions in the top, on the conference was how do we know uh, of a panel yesterday was um, how do we know whether um, trade agreements work? You know, do trade agreements matter? I've been working on the same issue on the environmental side for about 10 years of do, do environmental agreements matter? And then what I want to talk about here is just um, I'm developing this large project which tries to say there's only one or two or three or four or five treaties I can examine in my lifetime, in my academic lifetime. But what I want to try to do is bring together the kind of pieces of the puzzle that scholars would need to evaluate the, the kind of population of environmental treaties and to kind of facilitate that process. And I think in that process you see that there's a lot of data out there, but as Tony began, 
it's sort of like drinking from a fire hose. There's just way too much information, and getting the information you need in one place um, is a very big barrier to entry of people trying to do research in, in any area. And so this is an attempt to bring all the pieces together in one place. Um, uh, thanks to the um, National Science Foundation for supporting um, the work I've done as well, a bunch of research assistants who I won't name, spend time naming, but who have made, made this possible. Um, just to give you a sense of what, the, what we're talking about is, the first issue is just saying, well, if we want to do research on treaties, and let's, you can, throughout this pop, throughout this talk, you could do global search and re replace on trade, trade agreements for environmental agreements to get a sense of how, of whether the structure might be useful in the trade area. This was just starting by saying, what, how many environmental agreements are there out there? And you get all kinds of ranges of estimates, partly because people don't know what's an international agreement, what's an environmental agreement, and what's an agreement. You know, what should count as in these different categories? So I started the project by just, you know, just defining what my terms were and then beginning to count. The problem is there's not a list there that you can say where it is, so you have to collect it from a whole bunch of different sources. The UN has a lot of it, but not all of it. I was interested in bilaterals as well as multilaterals, so I was also interested in that, much of which is in English, et cetera. So this just gives you a sense of the growth over time and the agreements that are out there between agreements, protocols, and amendments. Um, this is just different by different initiatives since we're not interested in this. It just gives you a sense of what you can start doing with just one piece of the puzzle. So the problem is that there's really hundreds. This is multilateral, meaning three countries or more of agreements that are focused, that have as a, a purpose of their, the agreement um, to improve the environment. Um, there's, there's literally over 800 multilateral agreements on environment of different sorts. That includes um, accounting amendments and protocols as agreements. Um, but evaluations are common of some of them, but not most. And, the, and comparisons across agreements are particularly rare. So the ability to say, did the Montreal Protocol do better than the Kyoto Protocol? Those are the kinds of questions that a policymaker would want to know, to know which one to imitate, and yet we don't have a lot to work with yet. Um, systematic data on performance exists for a lot of cases, but it's um, usually not linked to specific agreements. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, but the important thing we know is that some treaties work, some don't, and we want to know which ones work better, and what are the kind of the active ingredients, if you will. What are the parts of the treaty? It's, it's certainly not what language it's written in or, you know, how many words it has. We've got to figure out what are the parts of the agreement that are really doing the work. Um, and the part that's relevant here is that analysis requires large amounts of disparate but hard to find information and data, much of it coming from international organizations. So the goal is to facilitate analysis by kind of bringing all this information together so lots of different scholars can use it um, and provide sort of a centralized repository that has all the pieces of the puzzle in one place. And I'll go through what those are. Here are what I see the pieces of the puzzle is. First off, if you're a researcher who's doing research on the effects of environmental treaties, first you'd like to be able to say, well, I selected my cases carefully. Well, to select cases of anything carefully, you need to know what's the population you're selecting from. So the first step is to just get the population. What, what treaties are out there? Um, the second is to get the official text of those treaties and have those all in one place so you know, so you can start selecting a little more carefully. The third part is knowing the membership history. The fourth is the systematic coding of the text content. If we want to know what are the active ingredients, it would be nice to know fairly readily. Out of these 800 treaties, I want to compare the ones with sanctions to the ones that have rewards. Well, not, I'm not going to go capture for all 800 which ones that is. 
a big part of what NSF wanted me to do was to begin that process, to say how do we know what's in each treaty. Um, that's proved much more difficult than I'm happy to talk afterwards about how hard that is to do well. Another part, fifth piece of the puzzle is performance indicators. We want to know whether the whaling treaty, notably, uh, um, I think Lundin just um, showed the 1931 treaty on whaling. Well, first of all, the first thing is to realize that most people don't know there was a 1931 treaty on whaling because most people think it started in 1946. Those people who know that there was a 31 one don't know there was a 37 one. They don't know there was a protocol to the 46 one in 56, et cetera. So just getting that information there is, is an important part because you might think that before 1946 there was no whaling treaties and therefore that's the kind of no treaty world before 1946 when in fact there were treaties already at that point in time. Um, but you need to know how many whales were killed in every year. That's not something that UNOG has. UNOG has the text, but somebody else has the number of whales killed in every year by every country in which part of the ocean. Putting those pieces of the puzzle together is important. The other part that is also available, so, but the International Whaling Commission, which is not under the UN system, does have those whaling statistics. So you've got to pull those together. Next part is factors influencing performance. Presumably one thing that affects the number of whales killed in any given year is economic performance of the countries being that are involved. Or you know, maybe if you're not, if whaling isn't working for you, think about pollution in Europe, acid rain. You would want to know if we have good data from the UNECE actually on pollution levels of different pollutants in Europe. We'd want to know also what were the economic production numbers. An important reason why the Soviet Union's and Russia's emissions of sulfur dioxide decreased dramatically after a treaty on, uh, on um, acid rain in Europe had nothing to do with the treaty. It had to do with the fact that their economy went into that toilet. And it turns out when you produce very little of goods and services, you also produce very little pollution. Um, and the last is just general secretariat research, uh, secretariat research resources, just other things that secretariats of different treaties have. Unlike in the trade arena where there's sort of the World Trade Organization, in the environmental arena there are over 250, 300 different secretariats, each one containing its own little pieces of information that you have to pull together. So let's, I'll talk about obstacles, approach, and progress in each of these areas really briefly. Um, I've got what, about five minutes left, a little bit more. Uh, um, uh, the first are, so thinking just about the obstacles to generating the list of all agreements. One, secretariats focus on the current text but not archiving. <laughs> No, but very, it's pretty actually, if you think about the Montreal Protocol on ozone depletion, which many of you may have heard of, it's actually relatively difficult to get the protocol as it looked in 1987 because there have been, if I recall correctly, three or five different amendments to it and adjustments to it. And so what you'll see is the current version. But if you want to know whether the treaty had an impact and when and what it was, it would be important to know that in 1987 there were no provisions to fund uh, reduction fund compliance um, by developing countries, whereas in 1990 there were. So it would be important to know that if India and China start complying in 1990, it was because they started getting funding for it at that time. So it's those sorts of things that are that secretariats, for good reasons, have different objectives, are not often are not as concerned with archiving when things happen, and um, but an analyst might well be. Um, some agreements lack secretariats, so there's some agreements. There was just an agreement between two, three, four countries, and they're just housed in the ministries of those different countries, so they may not be a secretariat or a central place. And that the existing places where you go, the UN, Ecolex, um, season, these are acronyms you would know if you worked in this field, but they're not really important. But basically they're all incomplete. The more you look at them, the more you find out that everything else out there is not doing the full job, at least from the point of view of 
in environmental groups. So the UN is doing a complete list of all UN deposit agreements, but not all environmental ones, since they're not all part of the UN system. Um, the approach, as I laid out, was a clear definitions of the population of cases I want to capture. Um, using secretariats um, and sort of aggregation websites, trying to just look through large numbers of websites and find out where are all the environmental treaties that I can, and then cross-referencing. If you find a treaty that's um, an amendment, you know, an amendment to a treaty, you can kind of back up and see, oh, there were three previous amendments to that. So there's a lot of just legwork. But essentially, I've collected a, um, a list now of over 800 multilaterals and over 2,000 bilaterals. Obviously, another obstacle in the bilateral case is that the treaty between Czechoslovakia and Hungary is pretty difficult to find in an English version. Um, and so you don't even know it exists, let alone where to find it or where to find a text. So see, some, there's a lot of other obstacles for a person with limited language skills. Um, so I've set this up and placed it on the web. You can't see it. But just to give you a sense, each shot will have a little screenshot of the, the website as either as it exists or how I'm developing it. It's just you say, give me all the multilateral environmental agreements from 1875 to 2005, and it pumps out the list of them, and, and where available gives you links to text, et cetera. Second part is getting the official text. Obstacles, there's a lot of obscure old and original texts that are hard to find. You, you can't call up some version. Um, there's very few. I think it would be difficult to find the 1931 whaling treaty anywhere online. Um, there's just lots of obscure documents that it's just hard to find. You need a good librarian like Tony or Chuck to help you do that. And he, often they don't know where it is because it's not something they've spent time focusing on. Often it's in a hard copy if you can find it. And surprisingly enough, even in areas of public law, copyright issues can get involved and not everything can be public, published on the web. Um, my approach has been to find the low-hanging fruit, find the easiest ones first, and then kind of keep adding value um, farther and farther on that. Um, I've done a lot, had undergraduates doing a lot of uh, digitizing and proofreading and trying to format it all consistently so that when you get to the website you can say, oh, here, here's the treaty documents all in the same format, not one in, you know, in some old PDF file and one as a photograph of some document, but all text that you can search, etc. Um, I've already got 650 uh, multilaterals, you know, in electronic format um, and I'm working out how to post them on the web in a way that doesn't violate copyright laws. Um, so here's just the Montreal Protocol. Um, and providing the original source material, you know, source of the document so that people can re-find the original source to, um, if, if appropriate. A third is membership history, because an important way you would know whether a treaty worked is by comparing who was a member and when to, so the states that were members to states that were not members. One of the issues that came up is talking about counterfactuals um, in determining whether economic, economic agreements had an influence on um, economic indicators such as poverty, uh, you know, uh, labor reallocation, et cetera, things like that, you need to compare what happened in member states to what happened in non-member states. In fact, I'm advising an honors thesis right now on a student who wants to know whether Mercosur um, between the four Latin American countries had any influence in terms of environmental impacts. So, and what they're doing is comparing the members of, of Mercosur to the non-members. And so that's important to know when did countries become members, et cetera. Um, the approach has been need, requires annual updating because the membership in most agreements changes over time. Um, uh, forcing it into consistent data format. I mean, if you just think about dates on the web, you know, you can. There are 15 different ways to present dates 
and trying to get that all in a way that you could actually know consistently for so that the researcher coming to the website doesn't need to figure out, oh, is that is the right-hand column the date or the, the year or the month or the day? <laughs> and doing that over different things um, can be challenging. Um, and I've, I've completed that for over 225 international environmental agreements. So again, this would be the sort of thing you would know when the treaty was signed and entered into force. You'd know when different countries signed, ratified, acceded to, et cetera, that sort of thing. Um, the coding of the treaty articles, this is perhaps the, the part that's proved most challenging. One, it's never been done before. Nobody's gone through a large number of treaties and tried to take every article in them and place them in some predetermined category in a systematic way. Um, and what you find is that there's huge um, variation across international environmental agreements. And what I've done is taken a process that's not actually done a lot in political science, it's often done in psychology, is to do something that's called reliability. To have, to, I write a coding manual that says I want, this is what I mean by sanctions. And then to give Tony, Tony and Chuck both a set of 10 agreements and find, take every article and put it in my categories and see if they match on the same agreements. That's the only way to know, did, is, are they actually doing what I asked them to do? And I'm doing it with undergraduates. It's proves quite challenging, actually, to do that in a way that you could know that the data you're producing is reliable. It's something people should trust. Um, the approach is I developed a careful coding manual. I have two undergrads coding every agreement, and I'm going to have to really caveat the results, as we talked about at, at lunch. Um, one of the ways of thinking about it is that there's creative ambiguity in treaties, which makes it really hard to code them systematically, <laughs> okay, that people are trying to obscure things when they write the language in the first place, and that makes it hard to de-obscure it when you're coding it later on. Um, that's gone much more slowly. They've only gotten 50 agreements coded at this point, um, and that's taken way too long. Um, so this would, you, know, you would get the text of the treaty with the coding. So um, to say that, that those first, the preamble contains the description and the goal, that there's substantive implementational and informational provisions in Article 1. I can talk more about that if people are interested. Um, performance indicators is another area. Obstacles, some don't exist. Deforestation, it's hard to get the annual data on deforestation. Um, there's multiple sources. Sometimes you're, to figure out what the data available is, you have to use multiple sources. Um, in fur seals, um, you can collect a bunch of documents here from actually from Leyland Stanford, um, or no. David Starr Jordan, who was actually a ichthyologist and, and counted fur seals up in um, near Alaska for many years, and combine that with current data that's available from the National Marine Fisheries Service and trying to couple those two, making sure they match in a way. And the other question that's interesting is FAO, the, um, uh, UNFAO, actually has fishery statistics for the last 50 years for 150 countries by, what, by species and area. So how many salmon were caught in the North Atlantic by the United States in 1970. The problem is you don't know whether those fish were that fish stock was regulated in that period. So having the kind of mapping of which treaties were regulating which species in which areas for which countries when is a crucial element. And the FAO kind of gives you this big dump of how many fish were caught, but you don't know. You have to capture were they allowed to be caught or not? What were the regulations that apply to that species? Um, so again, a, a, a sort of organic process of trying to bootstrap myself, get one data set, find another data set, start putting them together in systematic ways. Um, I'll go a little quicker here since I've, I've used my time. The other part is the World Bank has the World Development Indicators, which are a, a useful source of what are the um, 
you know, factors that influence performance. So if we're looking again at, at pollution in Europe, you want to know what are the GMP figures. You want to know um, a variety of other factors. You can, you can imagine if you're doing a regression analysis what the right-hand side looks like for any variable you care about. So for any, for any performance indicator you care about, you care about a whole bunch of things besides the treaty, and then say, can I explain why there's so much pollution from this country in this year? And then say, and did the treaty make a difference in how much there was? Because that's the, the crucial question that I'm, I'm interested in. A lot of other scholars are interested in answering. Um, even there, though, you have to think about that there's no data before 1990 for lots of Soviet bloc states. How do you deal with that? I mean, generally what it means is you just lost 10, 15, 20 years of data because you don't have the matching data on the other side. How do you make that work? Um, uh, Secretariat research resource, just to say that secretaries have a lot of other information that's background information that you would want to have access to. My main approach here is just to say, make sure you have up-to-date data for each treaty, what the, who the secretary is, what their website is, what their contact information, that sort of thing. Um, so concluding comments, I've gone through it pretty quick. A large project with lots of moving parts, but um, keeping things up-to-date is essential but challenging. If you go to most websites on a lot of things, they're Wait, you know, it was great in 2002, but now it's four years later and you don't have any idea whether the stuff is current. Um, but here the, the main goal is to take a targeted audience of probably 500 scholars who are really interested in international environmental agreements and make a, a one-stop shopping available for them so they can do the analysis that can then help, as, as Mike Keller and, and Tony mentioned at the beginning, help really guide future negotiators. And I think the same sort of thing um, has come out in the conference over the last couple of days of this sense of what are, what are trade agreements doing, what are their impacts, and how do we know what they are, and then how can we then help guide future um, trade agreements. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ron. Uh, I imagine somebody might raise some questions about uh, compliance, noncompliance, what do they mean uh, later on. Uh, not, not to mention reliability of statistics. Um, our fourth speaker is uh, Elisa Liberatori Prati. Uh, she's the manager of the World Library and Archives and Development in Washington. Uh, in her position, Elisa leads the Bank Group Archives, the Sectoral Library, and the Internal Documents Unit. Uh, maybe that's what we should have called internal documentation in the GAD. Huh? Uh, her top three priorities are, uh, number one, to effectively develop and implement strategies for these three functions, the units. Uh, two, to closely align service offerings for operations staff at HQ and in country offices. Always a problem uh, with uh, those IGOs that have uh, country-level offices. And th third, uh, to provide leadership to the library, archives, and documents team, and to be the bank's spokesperson uh, for these functions. Elisa joined the bank in 1998 to develop a partnership program on Latin American archives uh, to reinforce archives programs in that region. She has played a leadership role in promoting partnerships uh, for the archives and preparing the strategy for the archives disclosure policy. Prior to joining the bank, she was a senior lecturer at, at Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins, uh, and she has a Ph.D. in Italian Studies from the University of California at Los Angeles. She was also there at UCLA, a project coordinator of, of a key editorial project in archival resources. Uh, the title of her talk is Helping the World Bank Group Build, Manage, and Deliver uh, a World's uh, Best-Known Collection of Development Information. 
Thank you very much for inviting me here. And thank you for coming to the panel and for staying. Here we are. Um, and Tony, now I know that uh, I'm acting against your principles by using PowerPoint. But when I read in the program that I was supposedly the last person of the last panel of the last day of the conference, I had this nightmare. And I saw, I dreamt of all of you in the audience waving a huge bumper sticker saying, I'd rather be fishing. And so I decided to go with PowerPoint and also plenty of images, as you will see. Um, the title is sort of conceited, but uh, I wanted to, uh, to show it to you because uh, this is the way we inside the institution advertise our services. The institution is very um, much focused on the operations, and so we constantly have to remind them of why we exist uh, as archives and libraries. And uh, being the archives and the libraries of a big institution with 12,000 uh, staff and 150 country offices, so very decentralized, although the headquarters are in, in Washington and we are there, um, and being an institution that is 60 years old and has been operating as a multilateral development bank in all regions in the world, uh, we can probably safely say that what we have in the archives is really a comprehensive collection that is bigger than what the um, regional development banks have uh, because we are the World Bank. And we start uh, in 1946, and so our collection dates date uh, back uh, to that time. First picture. This is the reading room of the archives uh, at headquarters. So if you come there as a researcher, you'll be there, and one of us will be there observing you when you use our records. Um, this is um, the website of the bank archives. And uh, you can contact us through this website. And as you see, every month we have a different document of the month. Um, this is the first administrative circular on, uh, uh, and the predecessor of what we call Bank Swirl, that is a, uh, a satiric uh, publication that every year bank staff produce on April 1st, <laughs> April Fool's. And this is the, the April website. Uh, but if you look in the navigation bar on the left side, you will find uh, uh, an entry point to the history of the bank, a big chronology of the bank from 1946 on, how to access our collections and also our holdings, and also a catalog, although it's highly imperfect. Uh, but we are working now since the 2002 disclosure of information policy in producing finding aids that are more friendly, and so we are describing the holdings by phone, and I will tell you later. So you'll find here in the website the phone description uh, of the, those functions in the bank uh, that uh, started in 46 and then maybe changed their name 20 times over the past 60 years, but are always the same functions, and so you find them there. And you also find exhibits in this website, exhibits that uh, are born in paper and physically are displayed in the headquarters, then become virtual exhibits and are hosted in this website. And uh, our access policy and also the archive registration application, if you want to come and, and study with us or, or if you want us to help you find what you need before you come. 
but what is the operation behind uh, this website and, and who are we? We are three units, the archives, the internal documents unit, that is sort of the archives online, um, because uh, this unit uh, digitizes and puts online all the major reports of the bank. And when the disclosure policy was passed in 2002, we, we back, backfilled um, the collection to 1946. And so now you can find uh, uh, most of the, clear, the documents that are, have been cleared for access in this website of the inter internal documents unit. And then there is the sectoral library of the bank. Um, that deals with the major, the sectors in which the bank operates, from infrastructure to human development, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, what do we have in the archives? I would like to say it with the words of Hernando de Soto. You may know him. He's an economist from Peru, um, and we invited him to speak to raise awareness on the role of the archives for development. He came in 2004. And for the first time, the archives of the bank were able to fill up the auditorium of the bank to capacity. We had 500 uh, people who came to, to hear uh, Hernando, who is actually one of the few economists who make a connection between records and archives and the role of these in, in development, records, property rights, all these kind of things. So he came to talk about knowledge, archives, and development. And, uh, He's saying that, of course, in the archives we have 60 years of successes and failures. Um, you may want to call it uh, successes and disappointments, as Gerald Meyer says uh, in his biography of a subject, the history of development. Uh, but we do have them there, and, and the key is to open the door of these archives and, and call scholars who come and study these and, and the lessons learned. Um, and therefore, if that were to happen, we could say that the archives are the roots for success in a development institution. And uh, usually, we, we use this image, again, uh, with people inside the bank, to say why we are useful. Uh, because very often in a development organization like the bank, we focus on the fruits of a tree, and the fruits are the projects, the poverty, poverty alleviation efforts and, and the projects. But how can you have uh, nice, beautiful red apples on this tree if you do not uh, uh, give enough nutrients uh, to the roots of the tree? And we want to think that we are the nutrients for the roots of that tree. Uh, the information that we have, really the lessons learned, uh, can feed into those roots to help the tree produce more beautiful apples. All right. Uh, the scope of the archives, of course, is to preserve the institutional memory and uh, um, to promote inside the bank international standards for record keeping. Um, and here you see what we have. Uh, we have uh, um, plenty of boxes, but if you were to put all these boxes one on top of the other, uh, you would go up uh, uh, five times as high as Mount Everest. Okay, that can give you a sense. Um, 
we keep these boxes in mind, this sort of uh, Indiana Jones or Star Wars image, if you see it there, is our, um, the mine in Pennsylvania where we keep our, our holdings. And every night, there is, every night there is a shuttle bus that goes back and forth from headquarters to the mine. And therefore, if you order what you want to see by 2 p.m. Uh, today, you will have it on your desk tomorrow morning. Um, in this mine, we are not the only ones. Eh? We also have the IMF, the National Archives, the Library of Congress, the Walt Disney Corporation. They keep their, the original reels of the, of the movies. Stanford, too, yes, many universities. Uh, so it's like a city underground with 2,000 workers every day, and the bank has five. Um, you see here uh, the boxes, and it's uh, three football fields uh, filled up with stacks uh, with boxes, so five times as high as Mount Everest. And what do we have in these boxes? We have country files, we have photographs, we have economic reports, lending project files. Ah, what happened? And we have oral history interviews, film and videos, sector studies, many, many things, uh, uh, what the bank uh, uh, does. Uh, why the archives uh, um, exist? Because uh, uh, we collect the records that at some point are alive, and then they become uh, um, semi-active, and so we move them to the mind, and then inactive, and we keep the permanent ones that become our historic archives. We keep these records uh, because the information based on records if you go down the cycle of the implementation of the project, um, should facilitate effective decision-making and effective policies down to effective delivery of poverty alleviation projects. And then, for the institution to be accountable, you go up the chain of those records once, once the project is finished, and you verify whether really you made the right decisions, and, and therefore the impact is there. And this is why the archives are born and exist. Uh, a few words on the internal documents unit. Uh, as I told you, it's sort of the archives online in many ways. We have now uh, 64,000 documents and reports digitized and online for staff, so internally uh, to the bank. But 30,000 of these have already be, been cleared for disclosure. So you find them in a, in a website that has 200,000 unique visitors uh, every month. And of course, it's not only historic material. Mm -hmm. this, this site contains also the current uh, project reports, and it's called Documents and Reports. And there you find the URL if you want to, to find it online. And then we have the library with plenty also of online resources that go uh, to our country offices. And we are trying to have the country offices have as much access as we do at headquarters, but it doesn't work. Um, as much as we hoped. Um, well, in 2001, uh, the board uh, of the bank, so the board of the executive directors that represent uh, the 184 member countries in the bank, approved uh, a significant expansion of the 1994 policy on disclosure of information to provide access to many records, many documents, um, and current information. So for current information, the 2001, and then it was implemented in 2002, disclosure policy is pretty advanced. 
Um, and it's also the first disclosure information policy that uh, mentions historical records and historical information for the first time. So it was a good recognition for us because finally we were talking about archives and historic information. And uh, ever since uh, the number of requests by researchers um, went up to basically 150 uh, requests per year, and these are requests that require uh, clearing for access. We have 4,000 external requests per year, but most of them uh, are easy to, to solve, and we direct the researcher to the online uh, collection. But 150 require uh, really uh, clearances in the bank, clearances with uh, um, country authorities, uh, originating units, legal departments, and uh, of these, basically 25 researchers uh, out of these requests, 25 researchers per year come to the archives. And uh, the policy says that uh, um, information older than 20 years is available uh, for disclosure, but it's subject to constraints. And I'm going to tell you about the constraints. Um, what did we do with this policy? We were tremendously happy, and we started the work of reorganization of the holdings by phone, as I told you before, and we started describing the holdings. Um, well, when we get a request for something that is older than 20 years, um, we initiate this clearing process uh, with originating units, relevant councils, or the legal department, country directors in the countries, and very often they have to go to the council authorities in the countries. And this process can take between two weeks and four months if we are lucky, and longer uh, when the clearance has to go back to the country. And it happens very often. And we have things that have not been cleared yet, and we requested clearance eight months ago or one year ago. So it's a lengthy process. Um, some information that is subject to the constraints may be released under special access, but at that point, the researcher is expected to clear final, the final product with the bank before publication. You can imagine that all these things are pretty restrictive, and so in the past uh, uh, four years, 2002 to now, we've been methodically collecting all the input we got from researchers and basically all their unhappiness, and we are now raising it uh, to the policymakers in our institution. Um, and uh, we hope very much that we will get to a different policy next year. There will be a new board paper on disclosure of information uh, with a, an approach that should be wider for historical information and should really, in a way, clear up all the, the issues that there are with things that are older than 20. Uh, if you look at the constraints, for instance, for the correspondence, with the current policy, we cannot disclose. Okay? Um, internal documents and memoranda written by the president of the bank, by bank staff to their colleagues, supervisor or subordinate, are considered confidential and not publicly available per policy, even if they are 50 years old. So um, this is something we are trying to address, having collected all the input from the researchers. And, uh, and I must say that uh, um, when this policy was passed is when uh, uh, the syndrome of a split personality where bank archivists was 
born because we understand very well what the researchers want and what they would like to access. And frankly, if we exist and if we have a reason for existing, it's because someone comes to us and wants to study what we have. So we are very happy when people come, but we have to face, on the other hand, the fact that we are a service department in an institution with governance mechanism, and, and they have approved a policy that is not uh, uh, sanctioned. So um, we have this conflict. I mean, the, the archivists of the bank uh, are, are in this difficult uh, uh, position these days, and, and we hope we'll be able to move on and, and make some improvements uh, to this policy. This is an example of phone level. Um, almost done? Almost. Uh, we have identified 86 phones. So high level of aggregation of holdings. And uh, now we have described one third of them um, and um, posted them on, in the website. An example of a phone, we use the international standards for archival description. And these are records, uh, example of what you can find in the archives. These relate to loan one to France. And it's uh, 1947, is the first the first loan of the bank, and it was $250 million at the time, which makes this still the biggest loan ever made by the bank. And it was given to France uh, to uh, address the issue of transportation uh, after the destruction of Second World War. So um, Air France was born thanks to this loan, for instance. And uh, we have a, an exhibit online on this loan. You may want to go and see it in the website. And now, just quickly on trade, uh, you can find things on trade in the archives of the bank uh, since the very beginning of the bank, uh, because it's a key ingredient for economic development. Um, but uh, you need the archivist to find these things, um, because you can find information that is country-related, so in reports related to countries and in operational files. Uh, you can find it in the policy units, and uh, uh, in the research department, for instance, uh, files, um, where there is actually even now uh, a unit on trade. Am I correct? Yes, you're there. Um, and uh, we have serials, we have monographs that we can show you. Some of them are in the web. And uh, in 78, uh, the bank began its flagship publication, the World Development Report. And uh, the very first uh, WDR had a chapter entitled Trade in Primary Commodities Other Than Fuel. So you will be able to find things and also the data um, in, in different units. Although most of the data never came to the archives in form of data, we get the reports out of which I mean, that were built on the analysis of those data, but not the real series. They, they don't come to us. Um, and this is an issue we have to address. Um, well, that's it. If you come to Washington, uh, don't stop at the website, but come and, and visit us and uh, see the roots of development information at work. And here is how you can contact us via email or our website. Thank you very much. Thanks, Elisa. Our uh, fifth speaker um, and the last of the panel is Michael Toms. Uh, he's an assistant professor of political science here at Stanford, faculty fellow at the Stanford Center for International Development. 
His research interests uh, are wide-ranging. Uh, they include international relations, political economy, and public opinion. He's the author of Sovereign Debt and International Cooperation, forthcoming from the Princeton Press, and co-editor of Modern Political Economy in Latin America. His articles have appeared in numerous academic journals. Uh, Toms has received the Dean's Award for Distinguished Teaching and the Cox Medal for Excellence in Fostering Undergraduate Research. His current work is supported by a career grant from the National Science Foundation. He's also uh, one of the best friends uh, that uh, Chuck and I have in the library. Um, he uses us, we use him. The title of this talk is Scholarly Use of International Organization Information, A Researcher's Perspective. Right. Well, I had lunch with the panelists uh, yesterday and found out that Elisa was going to have an entertaining presentation with her PowerPoint slides and uh, the graphics. Then I found out that I was to follow Elisa uh, in the schedule. Um, so I thought I would bring my laser light show and my pyrotechnics until I remembered that this panel was taking place in the library. Um, I'm not allowed to bring those things in. So instead, I'll keep my remarks very brief, uh, just in case you do want to go fishing at the end of the panel or go to the cocktail reception uh, instead. The title of this um, brief talk is Scholarly Use of International Organization Information, a Researcher's Perspective. And I wanted to take a few minutes uh, to do two things. To mention some of the services that have been useful to me in my research over the past few years, services provided by the Stanford University Library and by international organizations where I have worked, um, and also to suggest or open a dialogue um, about some new initiatives that uh, our library and that international organizations could consider uh, to further increase the accessibility of their information for researchers. Um, so I want to talk about uh, two uh, proposals. Um, these are things that Stanford and other uh, libraries are doing now uh, that I think uh, could be extended into the future. Two proposals to facilitate research uh, from the researcher's perspective. Uh, the first has to do with digitization, uh, and the second has to do with shared access to library resources. So let me say what I mean uh, by each of these categories. Um, the first is that I, I'm a big fan of digitization. I've used a lot of digital materials uh, in my research, and let me explain why. Um, digitization, I think, has been useful for me and useful for other researchers, in part because it uh, facilitates access uh, to information. In particular, digitization helps to overcome spatial barriers uh, to international research. This is a conference about trade or about globalization. And as the world becomes more globalized and interconnected, it becomes increasingly important for us to access sources of data about international trade and international financial flows, not only in one place, but around the world. Uh, digitization uh, is a technology that can help us to overcome the spatial barriers to this kind of research by putting us in connection with those resources from many different libraries and archives around the world. Uh, so when materials are digitized, uh, we can do our research from anywhere in the world. Uh, we can choose our own uh, work environments. Um, at the same time, digitization is helpful because it overcomes some of the temporal, temporal barriers to research. Uh, differences in time zones. Uh, Stanford faculty and certainly Stanford students like to work uh, after midnight, but the library tends not to be open at that time. Uh, with digital access to information, uh, we're able to do our work uh, any time of day or night. Um, and uh, we can also avoid uh, long lines that sometimes form for machines and for uh, use of contact, uh, content uh, that many people want access to. Uh, 
Let me uh, give you a, a very specific example about how things work at Stanford. Um, so this is a, a candid shot that was taken of a Stanford University uh, student. You know that uh, the Stanford University mascot is the tree. Um, in order to get access to the library, this student put on his uh, tree uniform and went into the stacks. Uh, this is one way that we do research at Stanford. Um, another way that we do a research at Stanford is to go down to the media and microtext uh, division of the library and use the machines that are there. Uh, but there is a better way. With digitization, we can do our research uh, on the beach, on our laptop instead. Uh, so I think that there are very clear benefits to um, pushing forward with the digitization initiative. Um, I think digitization is useful not only because it improves access, but also, at least for me, because it's helped to facilitate my uh, analysis of materials. So the Stanford University Library has digitized uh, texts for me, uh, and other libraries have done the same for other researchers. That's enabled me uh, to search uh, the entire text uh, of documents and to zero in more quickly on the sections that are relevant for my work. Um, it's also allowed me to take notes uh, more accurately. Sometimes they take notes on a computer, sometimes I do this with note cards, but when the texts are digitized, I can literally copy and paste sections of a document into my notes and know that I've gotten a verbatim quotation from the uh, material that I'm using. Um, also makes it possible for me to collaborate more effectively. Um, for many of the projects that I'm engaged in, the work is too broad to be done by any one uh, researcher. With the materials being digitized, I can share those materials with my co-authors, uh, and we can be working with analyzing the same documents uh, simultaneously. And finally, uh, in my own work, I tend to keep a digital archive uh, of documents that I've viewed so that I can go back to them, refer back to them at a later point in time. Uh, that's possible with digitization, whereas it's not possible with uh, conventional ways of um, storing information. So I'm a big fan of digitization for these reasons, and I wanted to uh, give a few examples of projects that I've been involved in in one way or another here uh, at Stanford that have been useful for my research, um, and then say where I think the digitization initiative could go. Um, so one project that um, I have been the beneficiary of, though I certainly didn't uh, in any way I wasn't in any way responsible for starting it, was the, the GATT Digital Library. And um, I've had the experience of working with uh, GATT materials both the old way uh, and the new way. The old way uh, being to use microfilm machines like the microfiche machines like the one here that says uh, these machines do not make change. Um, uh, to, uh, to use our microfiche collection uh, to help establish some of the facts that uh, I mentioned yesterday morning in the panel about whether international trade agreements are effective or not. So Goldstein and Rivers and I had to find out which countries had rights and obligations under the GATT. This information uh, was not easily downloadable from the web. In fact, it had to uh, be accessed from the original GATT documents, so we had to do a lot of archival digging. And the first place that I looked uh, were these microfiches that uh, Stanford had acquired because at the time the digital library was not online. So I slogged through it the hard way. Um, but then uh, in the subsequent phases of our research, I was able to access the GATT digital library, which is now um, online. Uh, so all the same documents that I was using before and many others that I did not use uh, are now available electronically and are full text searchable. Um, if I had had this before, I'm sure our paper would have been done uh, a year or two uh, beforehand, uh, but now that we do have this, any future work that we do on the GATT and the WTO will go much uh, faster. So I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Judy and the library for uh, this remarkable initiative. I think it's a huge boon for research on international trade. Um, 
Some of my own research is not just about international trade, it's also about international finance. Um, and uh, Tony and Chuck have been a big help uh, to me in getting materials about international finance as well. Um, I look at international finance partly from a historical perspective, and um, some of my work touches on the 18th and 19th centuries as well as the 20th century. There was an organization in Britain called the Corporation of Foreign Bondholders, the CFB, uh, that helped uh, uh, investors to negotiate with foreign governments when those foreign governments went into default on their debts. Uh, we acquired from a used bookseller uh, a copy of all of the annual reports of the Corporation of Foreign Bondholders, uh, and then Tony arranged to have these annual reports digitized and put up on the university website, which has been uh, a great use to me uh, and also for uh, my research assistants who have been working on uh, projects involving international finance. So that's the second project. Tony, thanks very much for your help uh, with that one, too. Um, the third one um, is that I've been using uh, a unique set of newspapers uh, that were compiled by the Corporation of Foreign Bondholders. The corporation, uh, in order to do its job of negotiating with foreign governments, had to keep tabs on what all foreign governments were doing with respect to their debts. And uh, partly as a way of doing that, they clipped articles from dozens of British newspapers and newspapers from abroad and organized them into scrapbooks uh, by country and then chronologically. Uh, so they took the newspapers in the upper right-hand corner, and they put them into these scrapbooks. There's a photograph uh, that I took at the Guildhall Library in London, where the originals are located. Um, it's a fantastic resource, but unfortunately to use it, I would have to fly myself and my research team uh, to London uh, every summer uh, for several years to be able to go through this uh, collection. Uh, so we found a better way to do it than involved digitization. Uh, the first was that Stanford Library acquired a microfilm copy of uh, these newspaper clippings. Uh, and then I hired an outside firm to digitize all of them. Uh, and so over the last uh, three uh, summers, I've worked with a team of research assistants to go through uh, 200,000 pages uh, of newspaper clippings. Um, and it's not anything that I would have been able to do uh, had we not been able to digitize this collection and distribute it among members of the, of the research team. Uh, so these are just some examples of how, in my own work, I've used digital materials and how the digitization itself has been essential to making the research go faster. Um, so here's my digitization wish list. Uh, some suggestions for how we might take the already incredible initiatives that we have at Stanford and elsewhere and push them forward. Um, the first is that I'd like to initiate a discussion about the idea of creating a digital library on globalization. Uh, in fact, just a few weeks ago, uh, Chuck and Tony invited me to lunch to talk about this uh, idea, and I think it's a fantastic one that uh, Stanford and other libraries would have to do collaboratively because it's a large project. Uh, the idea would be to uh, take the experience that we have with the GATT, uh, WTO, the GATT archive and expand it into a larger archive of information about trade, finance, uh, and development. Now, since uh, Google is already digitizing uh, many uh, printed books, the focus of this project might be on materials that are uniquely available at international organizations uh, or manuscript collections that are not to be digitized by Google uh, and other uh, private, uh, private companies. Uh, but I think that uh, if we were to push forward on this, uh, we would be able to take the benefits uh, that we've already realized with the GATT archive and expand it more generally into other research about uh, globalization. Um, 
A second uh, possibility, and already uh, Stanford is moving in this direction as well, is to expand uh, services, uh, on-demand services for digitization for faculty. I already mentioned that uh, with the newspaper project, I uh, took reels and sent them to a digitization company to uh, have digital copies made. Uh, it would be great uh, for libraries and for international organizations uh, to have some kind of service stations where people can use their materials and digitize them on site. Um, and so here I get to thank uh, Mike uh, for a new initiative at Stanford that involves getting a high-speed uh, digitizer uh, to do this kind of thing uh, with microfilm that I had done uh, in previous years uh, by myself. Of course, that also involves access to software, uh, uh, much of which is too expensive for any one uh, individual faculty member to uh, purchase. And so libraries and international organizations could also provide access to the kind of software uh, that would make uh, better use of these digital materials. The second way in which the library has helped me a lot, uh, and in ways in which uh, I'd like to suggest that we could go even further, is in shared access uh, to materials. Um, there's an obvious need for sharing access to materials, and I feel it acutely here uh, at Stanford. Some items are unique. There are certainly some manuscript collections, that, like the uh, manuscript collections that we've just heard about, that are only available at one place uh, in the world. Um, there are others that, uh, though they were not unique at the time that they were published, they are unique now. Uh, so materials that were published in the 18th and 19th century are available at some libraries, but not at Stanford, which wasn't a university at the time that those materials uh, uh, were being published. And we've made a lot of efforts at retrospective acquisitions. Um, even so, uh, there are certain materials that are not available here simply because we weren't in a position to buy them uh, at the time that the um, books and pamphlets were published. Uh, there are other kinds of materials that are available, uh, but they're quite expensive. Um, and so there's a need for libraries to share the price of the acquisition and the storage uh, of these kinds of materials. And this, so both of, in both of these ways, uh, there's an opportunity for shared access uh, by libraries. I wanted to mention a few uh, examples. Uh, some of which I've been the beneficiary of here at Stanford. We have a great relationship with the uh, uh, Berkeley Library, uh, whereby Stanford faculty members have reciprocal privileges uh, at Berkeley. And uh, that also comes with a special interlibrary loan uh, program, the RLCP program, where we can get expedited shipment of books uh, and other materials from the Berkeley Library. And uh, so that, for me, uh, has been a big boost for my research because materials that we don't have here I can get within two or three days uh, from Berkeley. Um, another common example of shared access is the Center for Research Libraries. It's a consortium of research libraries that shares the cost of buying uh, unique materials such as uh, magazines and newspapers uh, and makes those uh, materials available uh, to the libraries who are members of the organization. Um, a yet another example of a kind of shared access uh, that I had direct experience with was acquisition of the Foreign Bondholders Protective Council manuscripts. So in part of my research on international debt, um, I was trying to track down the records of the American counterpart to the Corporation of Foreign, bond, the Corporation of Foreign Bondholders, that's the Foreign Bondholders Protective Council, uh, and found somewhat to my dismay that they were kept in a warehouse that looked about like this one here uh, in Brooklyn. Um, and I did go to use those, this was when I was a graduate student and braver than I am now, um, uh, to use those materials at this warehouse in Brooklyn. Uh, no heat, one light bulb, uh, incredibly filthy, uh, but the materials, of course, are there. 
on offer for any researchers who want to use them. Um, when I came here to Stanford, I mentioned this to uh, Tony and Chuck, and they suggested why not make these um, more conveniently accessible to a wider range uh, of researchers by bringing the collection out of the warehouse and into the library um, at Stanford. So uh, that's what they did. Uh, they arranged to have the materials move from this warehouse in Brooklyn to the special collections department here at Stanford, uh, where it can be used uh, by me, by my students, and by anyone else who wants to come. In fact, we already have a researcher, Tony mentioned, who's coming here this summer, uh, all the way from England to use these uh, materials. So I doubt these would have been accessible had it not been for this initiative to move them uh, to our special collection. Uh, my wish list for uh, shared access to materials would include first uh, forging uh, tighter relationships between international organizations, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, and the UN, among others, and university libraries. Uh, those might be relationships in which we uh, gain access to materials, in which uh, both the universities and the international organizations exchange materials more quickly through a, some kind of an expedited interlibrary lending service, similar to what we have uh, with Berkeley here. And possibly, for materials that can't be shipped from one library to another, establishing uh, travel grants whereby faculty and students uh, could go to these international organizations to use the libraries, and researchers at the international organizations, in turn, could come to Stanford and other universities to use what unique collections that we have here. Um, so that's my first wish, uh, a stronger relationship between uh, universities and international organizations. And the second would be more uh, of the kinds of things that I had uh, mentioned a second ago, acquiring what would seem to be somewhat inaccessible materials just because of the fact that they're very inconveniently located, and bringing them to Stanford or to other libraries, and then opening them up for access to everyone. Um, so again, I want to reiterate uh, my thanks to the library. I couldn't do my research uh, without my many friends here uh, in this room, so thanks very much for all of your help with that. And I hope we can continue uh, in progress along the same direction. Well, predictably, uh, we have uh, stayed too long. Um, however, um, we were scheduled to go from two to four. Uh, if there are, uh, we could probably entertain four or five questions. Um, there is a uh, assuming there are some, uh, there is a microphone a microphone directly behind uh, the gentleman here on, on my right. Uh, if anyone has a question and wants to address any individual member or the entire panel, and I, I would restrict this to only 15 minutes uh, and uh, see how many, what kind of discussion we can have. So, Mike? Yes, but I have to emphasize that Mike Tom's slide of the kid in the dress in the tree um, is not an example of what we expect from Stanford students in order to get into the library. Uh, in fact, they come in dressed in all manner of uh, outfits, and all they need is their Stanford ID uh, shoes, shirt, and uh, appropriate trousers or skirts. That's, that's, that's what they bring to demonstrate their allegiance when they've forgotten their ID card. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where I was part of the advisory committee when the World Bank's archival project uh, started and since then I have had I don't know whether this problem or the question has been addressed uh, fully. Uh, the first one uh, is about uh, the whole approach to uh, archival uh, the uh, 
collections, whether to go uh, the way you be describing, uh, set up a date beyond which uh, everything is open and it's a 40-year date or a 20-year date. That's fine. There was also another thing that, uh, in my view, is essential, that as documents currently get produced, you can have either a positive list approach, which I don't want, a negative list approach, unless somebody takes an active step to restrict it. Any document that is being produced would automatically be available to everybody. This is a negative list approach. The positive list, list approach would say, look, uh, I've, uh, you have to get every document first the, the, uh, cleared before it is, uh, it is released. And I think this, this way of doing it at least will reduce the accumulation of documents which get classified and then later you have to decide when to open it or whatever. That's number one. Uh, number two uh, issue, this we talked about in the World Bank context, this applies uh, much more widely. Now, imagine the World Bank, in fact, the same type of project, whether it is transportation, uh, irrigation, whatever, in several countries at several times in the past, now in the future. Now, if you go to the, if you had a real institutional memory, if you say this is a problem, now what did the World Bank do? when the, this thing came up some time ago. What was the advice? How did the advice pan out? What do we find, find out? There's no way, there was no way of doing it at that time. I don't know whether it is uh, any better now so that you can learn from the experience. The last point is about uh, statistics as well as more generally. Uh, none of the international organizations I know collect their own primary data. Most of the data are, they are retailers, data retailers. They reproduce data that are collected by national agencies. So just because World Development Indicators has 150 countries on the same table, me, it does not mean the number they quote for each of these 150 countries necessarily are comparable, is of the same quality or whatever. Now, World Bank has resisted uh, in giving a quality indicator uh, to the user saying, look, do use this number at your own risk, or giving a number with a range within which its reliability could be, uh, uh, could be expected to fall. That it doesn't do. And so uh, researchers, lazy researchers in particular, who run cross-country regressions, they take these numbers on faith and then dump, put them in their uh, regressions. It'll be, it's, a, uh, it's a terrible, terrible kind of thing. This, Putting numbers together with qualification uh, invites that kind of pseudo-research in, uh, 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 in my view. And uh, uh, this applies in the documents case. Uh, World Bank documents will have obviously a self-serving quality. Now, if you want to find out whether what they say about what India said or something else, you have to have a counterpart as the country document. There is no way of uh, cross-checking and collaborating. Thank you. I'll start quickly. And uh, actually, Professor Srinivasan was one of our advisors in 98 and 99 and probably also 2000. We had a grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation that helped us put together a, a group of advisors to give us guidance on how to go about um, opening the archives. Um, and it was great. And it was really thinking freely 
on, on how to go about it. Then, of course, the policy came. And the policy is different from uh, what we, we hope to do, really. And, and the policy is the policy that we have, and we need to operate uh, inside uh, this policy because it is there. And it's the wish uh, of the 184 member countries. So, so we have it and, and we, we use it. Uh, as I told you before, we are trying to make some enhancements. Um, as you are rightly pointing out, uh, um, one of the ways to go about disclosure is really being open. And uh, the policies that we have now for current information has a presumption for disclosure. So it is really open for current information. So going on from now on, uh, 20 years from now, we'll have many less problems, of course. And this is very welcome. Um, still, um, things that are documents that are related to the deliberative process that can be the correspondence, the internal correspondence of the bank, uh, are covered by constraints. They will continue to be covered by constraints because otherwise, uh, um, and one, one of the ways of thinking of this is that if your correspondence to your colleague is open to the whole world from today on, the moment you write it, you don't have the freedom to really express what you think and, and to work and discuss freely with your colleagues. So this is one of the points of view. And that's why the correspondence will not, is not disclosed on the spot. Um, and I think that the correspondence is a very rich uh, wealth of knowledge. And if you go back to the past, it's in that correspondence that you find why decisions were made uh, from a political point of view and how the, those decisions may not have coincided with the technical decisions, right? There, there is this disparity. And it, that's the beauty of going back to the archives and, and to the correspondence. Anyway. Um, on, the, on what you're saying, on learning from experience and the example of the irrigation project, we hope we are getting closer to that uh, and thanks to uh, information technology. If uh, the reports that we have digitized, um, we can meta-tag them and therefore uh, go to specific parts in those reports where we know that specific comments are going to reside. This would then help us in a search to pull out uh, comments on specific access aspects of the project and therefore have the lessons of experience more accessible. But we are not there yet. And, uh, and now we still have to do it manually. And sometimes people come to us and we do it manually. We pull out documents on a, on a specific project that a new task manager is, uh, is working on uh, and is similar to projects in the past. But we have to do it manually. So not there yet. Um, on the statistics and the reliability, I'm so happy that we have in the audience my colleague from the research department <laughs> who can answer your question much better than me. <laughs> and here he is, and he's Guido Porto. So. I, I, I don't know, maybe I am pessimistic. I don't think, um, I don't think we will um, go there. Uh, not soon at least, but you know, I am not in charge of preparing any sort of data, so <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope for the best. Well, I would just respond that I think, I, I think most researchers realize what they're, you know, 
what they're getting into. You know, when I download data, the first thing I did is graph every dependent, every performance indicator. If there's straight lines in it, I say it's not worth using, right? If I, if I know, yeah, they, they caught the exact same number of fish every year for 10 years in a row, probably not good data, right? <laughs> so that one, you know, it, but that's, it's, it's equal, I mean, the, I was saying this, what you said is also true for what the data the IRS collects. That's all report self-reported data. It's just at the personal level. Why should we trust the IRS data when we know, in fact, that in fact a greater fraction of people lie on their taxes than countries lie to international organizations? So, but we use that data. So it, it's just that we have to use it with the recognition that it has certain biases, you know, and that different countries would bias it in different directions. And you know, you looked at planned economy data very differently. I, so I think it's it's definitely true. You have to be careful, but I don't think. I think good scholars know they have to watch for that, when, that they don't just accept the data from international organizations as gospel. Other observations or questions? Well, thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.